0: Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will die. On his way in to Jerusalem, Jesus passes through Jericho. Uh, Jericho is comfortable, fashionable, and an expensive place to live, as it was in Jesus' day, so it continues through to our day. It's like that. Many of the priests and Levites who in Jesus' day served in the temple live in Jerusalem. They lived in Jericho. Uh, some 25 kilometers away. And given that uh, Jericho uh, was home to many of Israel's religious elite, you'd naturally be curious about Jesus' visit there. I mean, how did the people react to him? Um, What kind of hospitality was extended to Jesus in that place? And what we'd expect, given that Jesus is at this point in time an enormously popular and well-known public figure, what we'd expect is basically we'd expect a large crowd to come all the way out to welcome him. And the more people who came, and the further they they'd traveled, uh, the greater the esteem of the person they were welcoming and would also expect a, a crowd to travel out with him after his visit, going with him. And the more people who came out with him, and the further they traveled along with him, the greater the esteem. Um, Middle Eastern Bible scholar uh, Kenneth Bailey, uh, he lived in uh, southern Egypt in the early 60s. And um, he writes about um, the time President Nasser, who was at that time, point at the height of his popularity, he he writes about the day that President Nasser came to visit his town in southern Egypt. And he he says that thousands of people walked out more than 10 miles out of town to greet him. And once he arrived, it was required that all the cars in the presidential cavalcade, or that's what it's called, cascade, pollinate, uh, um, uh, procession, uh, all the cars in the presidential thingy had to turn uh, their their engines off so that the locals could tie ropes to their bumper bars and pull them the last 10 miles into town as a gesture to honor this great man. And such actions, of course, honor the visitor, but they also bring honor to the city. And Jesus lived in a world of honor-shame relationships. Public honor is the key to everything in Jesus' day. So once a, a public figure has arrived, he'd be treated with the best hospitality the town could offer. The prestige of the city depended upon it. Um, it wasn't up to the guests to, to determine w- where he was welcomed. No, that that was the prerogative of the city, and they chose the right person to welcome uh, to, to welcome um, this visiting dignitary and to bestow on, it, on him. The guests did not choose where they went. Well, what do we see with respect, therefore, to Jesus' visit to Jericho? Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all give us an account. Um, Luke alone actually tells us where Jesus had lunch that day, and it was in the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Um, And Jesus chose that spot, not the town. Uh, All three gospels also uh, tell us about, uh, all three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also tell us about Jesus healing a blind man. In Luke's account, the healing of the blind man occurred not on the way out of town, but rather on the way in. And perhaps that's because Luke wanted to separate that story from the Zacchaeus incident. In Matthew's account, Jesus healed not one, but two blind men as Jesus made his way out of the city. And undoubtedly, indeed, others undoubtedly were healed that day. But Mark, in contrast, wants us to see just one. So it's Mark's account that we'll focus our attention on today, and we're coming to the end of a series of sermons looking at miracles in Mark's gospel, and this is sermon 7 out of 10. And the key idea um, with respect to this series is that miracles, when properly understood, In their biblical context, miracles are amazingly articulate. They are an amazingly articulate form of communication. Miracles tell us so much, it's miraculous. So what does this miracle tell us? Well, uh, let's take a look. Uh, Verse 46, page 823. Page 823. Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. And Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. Sorry, as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Well, uh, interestingly, Mark blanks the entire visit. Jesus is entering, and then suddenly Jesus is leaving. And the only thing worth telling us about Christ's visit to Jericho is something that happened on the way out. Now, unlike Matthew uh, or Luke, Mark gives us the name of the blind man. In fact, he names him twice, giving us the Aramaic form, Bartimaeus, and the Greek form, son of Timaeus. Now the form son of can mean literal son or descendant of someone, such as Jesus, son of David, descended from David, or it could mean like uh, John, son of Zebedee, Zebedee is his dad. But the, the son of formula can also mean the essence of, the very personification of, such as of course Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, essence of encouragement. Now, Mark doesn't usually name recipients of miracles. This is only the second time, the first being Jairus, the synagogue ruler. So why name Bartimaeus? Well, one reason perhaps is that he was known personally to the church that Mark was was writing to. But why name him twice? Well, probably because Mark wants us to think about his name. Timaeus is the Greek form of a Hebrew word, which means literally uncleanness. And the word itself is, as you might guess, unclean. Son of Timaeus literally means son of filth. Um, That's its referent, that's what it refers to, but the register, which is to say the degree of rudeness or shock value, is probably in the order of son of four-letter word beginning with S. Four-letter word beginning with S, which I won't. I can say, but I won't say in church, just in case it startles folk. Um, But look, hold on. You know, in all fairness, Mark is gently rubbing our noses in it, so to speak, when he twice asks us to consider this man's name. Son of filth. I mean, this guy is poor. He's a beggar. He's homeless. Probably has few. Or no friends, he's unemployed and he's unemployable. And he's a beggar, he's the, the, the bottom of the pile. Verse 47 When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And again, Mark's language is strong and direct. The phrase, told him to be quiet, politely translates a phrase that could render, they told him to shut his mouth. And there are several reasons that we can think of as to why there'd be many in the crowd who'd be only too pleased to tell this guy to shut up and to keep Quiet. One reason is quite simply that we all find it exquisitely embarrassing when someone we might consider to be socially inappropriate acts so as to hijack the agenda at a socially important social function. I've experienced that kind of embarrassment, and I've been the cause of that kind of embarrassment. In this text, the city of Jericho has its own agenda and the son of filth is not on it. Neither is Zacchaeus, actually, for that that matter. Another reason why you'd want this guy to be quiet is the language he's using. Son of David, son of David. That's a politically charged form of address that's a politically charged way of referring to Jesus of Nazareth the son of david is not a title that um that jesus usually receives most people politely address him as as teacher or rabbi or sir and that's that's polite to be sure but son of david is political it's the title of the king it is identical in meaning to messiah And shouting out that sort of thing can get people killed. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Well, um, Jesus doesn't need to stop. Um, He can either keep going if Bartimaeus is, is further down the track or he can turn around if Bartimaeus is behind him. He doesn't need to stop, but he does stop. And the implication is quite clear. Jesus is offering... An implied rebuke to the crowd. Um, They're not doing what they should be doing. So you call them. Um, What should they be doing? Well, they're obviously blind to it, and Christ's own disciples are still blind with respect to much of Christ's agenda. Um, let's, Let's look at this blindness. Only in the previous chapter, at one point, people are bringing little children to Jesus for Jesus to lay his hands on them and to bless them, and the disciples try to stop them. Not much later, Jesus tells his disciples for a third time that he's going to Jerusalem in order to be betrayed, tortured, condemned, and executed, to be raised on the third day. And James and John respond to this by asking for the privilege of sitting at his left and at his right in his glory, which shows that in Jesus' own words. They do not know what they're asking for. They they, they get some of it, but they are blind to most of what Jesus is telling them. So why the rebuke to the crowd? What, 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 What should they have been doing that they weren't doing? What were they supposed to be doing? Well, actually, what they're supposed to be doing is leading people to Jesus. That's what we're all supposed to be doing, leading people to Jesus, not putting obstacles in their way, not stopping them from coming to Jesus. So they called the blind man, cheer up, he's on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And there's, there's a beautiful little eyewitness detail there, which neither Matthew or Luke include, and it's the throwing aside of, of the cloak uh, and it's telling. Usually, when summoned to a meeting with an important man, you take a few moments to put your cloak on, not take it off. You dress up for such occasions, not down. And even more so when we consider that for this man, his cloak is without doubt the most expensive thing he owns. It's vital also to his survival, for keeping him self warm on cold nights. But but he chucks it aside like rubbish in the face of the possibility of meeting Jesus. Verse 51 What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And um, in at least two ways, it's a rather extraordinary question. Um, It's extraordinary because we all think we know. I mean, he's blind. But the question gives the man dignity. The the, the one in power asks for the consent of the powerless one. Now, in the Middle East, being a blind beggar puts you at the bottom of the social hierarchy, but you're still on it. You have a legitimate place in society. It's at the bottom, but you can legitimately beg. If he receives his sight, he can no longer beg. That would be illegitimate. So... Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And um, there, of course, as I've just mentioned, there is an extraordinary power differential here. The son of David says to the son of filth, what can I do for you? Um, The king has become a servant to the blind beggar. Um, Let's consider those words. In the context of what Jesus has just been saying, just immediately before this incident, verses 41 to 45. When the turn, when, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what what do we notice? Well, we notice that that Jesus, um, he, he practices what he preaches. And actually, I think that's rather extraordinary. I I, I think that's miraculously amazing. Um, You might know, I do a little bit of preaching too from time to time. And uh, you may have noticed. And I I would just like us to pause to see how impressive this is, that somebody somebody practices what he preaches, because that's really hard. Jesus, the king, makes himself the servant of the blind beggar, practicing what he preaches. Continuing, the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Um, Well, um, if you read these uh, verses in different English translations, you'll see that there's quite a number of different ways in which this exchange can be translated. Um, firstly, just to give you some idea, firstly, the blind man um, actually says rabboni, strictly speaking, rather than rabbi. And the words mean the same thing, teacher, but rabboni is a stronger, more possessive form, my own personal teacher. Um, secondly, Jesus literally says, go, your faith has saved you. The, the Greek verb "sodzo" means to make whole. And so it is correctly translated in medical contexts, healed, and it is correctly translated in theological contexts, saved. But saved and healed are two quite different ideas for us in English. We're forced to choose which which is the right meaning for this Greek verb. But in Greek, they're the same thing, to be made whole. The, the blind man has been saved from blindness. So in one sense, in, in, in one sense, when we consider Jesus' statement, go, your faith has healed you, one of the things that strikes us is that this healing miracle is not like other hearing miracles. Um, other hearing miracles, wherein Jesus says something like, I tell you, get up and walk, or stretch out your hand, or I say to you, rise up, or be opened. Um, in those miracles, the focus... the attention is on Jesus as the one who has authority. Um, And we see clearly uh, Jesus is showing us that he has authority over sickness, disease, disability, and death. Now, in Mark chapter 10, we already know that. In in those miracles, the finger points to Jesus. We know that he is God with us. He is the one who heals. In this miracle, however, Jesus actually points away from himself. He the finger points not back to Jesus. He distances himself from the healing. He, he wants us to see the blind man's faith. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't heal him. Of course Jesus healed him. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord who gives sight to the blind. But I am saying that that's not what Jesus wants us to see. Jesus wants us to see this man's faith. So let's take a look at it. Well, uh, what can we see? We can see that there are, when it comes to attracting Jesus' attention, there are many good ways of doing it, but shouting, Son of David, at the top of your lungs, uh, uh, not only as a way of calling Jesus, but as a way of publicly demonstrating your belief that Jesus of Nazareth is God's anointed king, the Messiah, That's, that's, that's he's preaching the gospel already. He doesn't care what others think. He's preaching the gospel even before he was healed. He believes what God has to say about his son. When called by Jesus, he discards as dross, everything that otherwise might have been precious to him, especially if it was going to delay or entangle, on his way to meeting Jesus. When he does meet Jesus, he calls him Rabboni, my personal teacher. It's not just polite, it's an act of commitment. He's committing to obeying his teachings. Jesus is his teacher, not just a polite form of address. And once he received his sight, he follows Jesus down the road, or indeed on the way. He becomes a follower of Jesus, a disciple. And his prayer is, I want to see. Well, he believes that Jesus is the solution to his problems, and as we've seen again and again in this series, as soon as we believe that Jesus is the solution to our problems, we're saved. We're saved. We're justified. We're forgiven. We are God's friend. Um, and, and that is an extraordinary miracle uh, all, of its, all of its own. The miracle of justification by faith alone. As soon as you believe Jesus is the solution to my problems, the Father counts you in. You are his child. So... <clears throat> Let's start wrapping up. What does this miracle tell us about Jesus? Well, it tells us a lot about Jesus. One of the things it tells us is that this is a man who is quite happy to bypass the opportunity of lunch with the religious establishment, but he is not happy to bypass the opportunity to answer the prayer of the poorest, least respected man in town. Given that we know already that Jesus is king, this miracle tells us a lot about his kingdom. Uh, It it is an upside-down kingdom. It, It is a place of reversal. It is a place where those who exalt themselves are humbled and where those who humble themselves are exalted. It is a place where the first are last and the last are first. What does this miracle tell us about what Jesus came to do? It tells us that Jesus is the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This miracle tells us that Jesus came to give sight to the blind. Um, Mark's gospel is uh, constantly emphasizing the blindness of Christ's disciples, or at least their partial sightedness. that They get some things, but they completely miss other things. In contrast, spiritually speaking, Bartimaeus sees clearly from the moment we meet him. And what does this miracle tell us about us? Well, it begs the question, do we see clearly? Do we see clearly? As for me, as I've chewed over this text for a week, um, God has been showing me that with respect to the people in my life and with respect to the people of St. Barnabas, there are some people that I find very easy to ignore and some people that I wouldn't dare ignore. Just in case I need to spell that out for you, that's really bad. Um, That's partiality. That's favoritism. Uh, That's uh, me being only partially sighted that's me not seeing clearly Um, I do I have asked God's forgiveness and I ask your forgiveness for partiality I mean boy if the pastor of this church has a problem with partiality this church has got a problem Um, so I've asked God's forgiveness and I ask your forgiveness and I I really only only mention it now really because to be perfectly honest I doubt that I'm the only one afflicted with this problem Um, if there's favoritism, we are not seeing people clearly. We're partially sighted. And we're blind to much of Christ's agenda. And the miracle reminds us that the fundamental... What did the crowd do wrong? What were the disciples doing wrong? The miracle reminds us that the fundamental job of humanity is to bring humanity to Jesus. Humanity... Being humane is found in our desire to bring people to Jesus, not put obstacles in their way. So are we bringing people to Jesus or putting obstacles in their way? Favoritism, partiality, that puts obstacles in people's way. How is it that we might see clearly? Well, actually, Jesus wants us to see Bartimaeus' faith. Bartimaeus is showing us the way. Bartimaeus receives his physical sight as a witness and testimony to the fact that his spiritual sight is 20-20. He sees because he believes. Seeing is not believing. It never has been, it never will be. No, believing is seeing. Not the other way around. The miracles in Mark have shown us this again and again. Do you want to see? Well, if you want to see, believe what Jesus has to say about himself. If you want to see, believe what Jesus has to say about yourself. And if you want to see, believe what Jesus has to say about everything else. When we come to Jesus, when we meet him, we be- when we believe what he has to say, Then we are made whole. Then we see. Um, A short prayer. Lord, I want to see. Please open the eyes of my heart. I want to see. Amen.